Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton, and we're coming to the end of 2019, but also to the end of my time as the Talking Biotech Podcast host. But I hope you continue to tune in as we have a number of guest hosts who will continue this weekly podcast. And I'll still be involved in the production and oversight, the website, uh, many facets, but I'll just get myself out of the public view as my university has requested. Nonetheless, with the science will go on. And so we'll start this new tradition um, by rounding out 2019 by talking to an old friend and a prolific author and somebody who's extremely well cited. Uh, we'll talk to Dr. Stuart Smythe. He's an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan up in Saskatoon. Oh, he also holds an endowed chair in uh, agri-food innovation and sustainability. So welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to join you this afternoon or this morning, I guess, on the one of the final days of 2019. <laughs> yeah, it's getting there, isn't it? Time flies when you're having fun. It seems like only yesterday I was up there uh, having a cold one with you somewhere during a nice warm summer day. Probably was going on a year and a half already. Science is moving so fast these days that it's just an exciting world to, to be working in where there's there's new discoveries and announcements on a weekly basis. Yeah, that's really true. And I think it's the breakneck pace of science that really is exciting for someone like you, who, you know, your area, your emphasis in your area is more in the in, in the area of economics of innovation. Is that how you'd really classify what you do? Yeah, that'd be a good way to frame it. Looking at trying to, to quantify the farm level benefits in terms of profitability or sustainability, uh, reductions in chemical use or uh, carbon or greenhouse gas mitigations due to new technologies and, and trying to, to provide policymakers with information about the benefits of innovation. Yeah, it's really kind of a cool job. And I love reading your stuff because it, it's, it's, you get to kind of sit back and look at the entire breadth of a topic and, um, and, and then decipher it and kind of put it all together and, you know, maybe have a little bit of opinion weaved in sometimes. But you're looking at, uh, like this last year, I think 2019, you had something like 11 papers published, maybe more. It was, you know, I really was amazed at how prolific you really are. And, and I, and I think I, and you're probably one of a few people who I actually read everything you produce. <laughs> so, so well, there's that. <laughs> at least there's one person out there. <laughs> I know in the world of eggheads, if we have, if we have an audience of a dozen, we're, we're huge, you know? That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Let's talk about some of the things that, uh, you know, you've really drilled down on so nicely over the last few years. And I think if we can leave everybody with something really good today, it's giving them the opportunity to share the story with others with a realistic assessment of things like risk and benefit and 
Um, you know, what are the policies like in the States, Canada, EU, that kind of thing. And I think we could cover a lot of ground here. So let's start out by talking about when we talk about biotechnology, when it's applied to crops, what are the real risks that we know are present and things that we as scientists pay attention to? Well, that's a really excellent place to start, Kevin, because a, a lot of the scientists that, that were sort of ahead of us were, were the ones in the in the 80s starting to do some of these initial transformations that, that came out of the Conan Boyer research in, in California in the, in the mid-70s with, with bacteria. And so when they started working with plants, there was several hundred scientists from around the world were organized through the um, OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development based in Paris that do a lot of global regulatory harmonization and standard setting. And so they they pulled a couple hundred scientists together through the late 80s and developed a, a, a global risk assessment system that looks at the potential for uh, <clears throat> GM crops to be allergens in humans or in, in animals, uh, the potential for toxicity, the impacts on non-target organisms, uh, cross-pollination, and, and the potential for the increase in weediness. So, so they developed a, a very comprehensive science-based risk assessment system that has, has worked at 100% efficiency because it's been approving safe GM crops for 25 years in, in Canada and the States. And We've we've seen tremendous benefits from the technology then as as it gets adopted into over twenty countries around the world now. Yeah, and then before we jump into benefits, you know, what risks do we see? And we can talk about health risks or environmental. And I know that we that you know the National Academies has been very clear that there's nothing that's been shown for health. Um, what do we know about environmental? impacts and things that scientists are currently really thinking about because they are things that we need to worry about. So one of the one of the first risks they looked at was the potential for GM crops to cross-pollinate or, or pollinate um, weedy relatives and and that took a considerable amount of research and and there's there's research that shows that that some GM varieties will have an ability to to pollinate with weedy relatives and and, and that's one of the risks that get, gets identified and, and companies have to submit information around that. They also look at the ability of um, consumption by non-target organisms. So uh, that one of the early ones that, that jumped up was when um, Loisy did research on monarch butterfly larvae and, and did it in a lab setting and was sprinkling um, BT corn pollen on the leaves and and observed that the uh, monarch larvae were dying which would be expected because they're they're simply another uh, a relative of of um, corn borers and so these are the the types of research that's that's been um, done that identifies risks the interesting thing about the loise research was that um corn industry did about two years of research after that 99 article and found that there's virtually no milkweed in fields, which would reduce the impacts on, on larvae as monarchs only lay eggs on, on milkweed plants. But the interesting thing was that they, they had done some of the first research in 60 years on, 
on how far corn pollen travels. And they, they found that it, in terms of a weight, it's quite a dense pollen. And over 98, 99% of the corn pollen was being deposited within five meters of the edges, edges of cornfields. Oh yeah, five meters even seems extreme. I Usually a corn plant, um, you know, it's it, it fertilizes by dropping it from the tassel straight down. So it's nice heavy pollen that falls right onto the silts uh, right below it. So even finding it far away, you know, 15 meters or five meters, 15 feet for you Americans, um, yeah. you know, is always, I know, <laughs> it's <That's> embarrassing. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I know, I always feel so bad when I talk to somebody who's on a good system because I, uh, but um, it, it, it doesn't travel very far. And when we, especially when we were in Hawaii and talking about these elaborate buffer zone ideas where they want a quarter mile or 600 feet, it just doesn't go that far. No. And I get, but what about things like um, uh, resistance to glyphosate or BT? How much of an issue is that in Canada? One of the best sources for information on herbicide resistance and, and its impact across different classifications of chemicals is, um, is weedscience.org. And, and what they've done is, is they've classified which weeds are resistant to which classification of chemicals. And so the the real benefit of this is it's providing farmers with with factual information as to which weeds are starting to develop resistance to herbicides. Uh, are those weeds, and the farmers will know if those weeds are present in, in their crops. So they're able to, to better understand the importance of chemical rotate or crop rotation so that they're not relying on the same chemicals to control weeds year after year. And, and I've seen some surveys of farmers and, and that's certainly one of their, their top concerns is that weeds are going to develop more of a, a resistance to herbicides. Some of the, some weeds now have resistance to four or five different categories of the 13 categories of, of chemicals. So that's where Weed scientists for, for decades have been advocating that the, the most effective means of controlling the, the increase in herbicide resistance in weeds is to tank mix multiple modes of action into to one chemical application. And so farmers and chemical companies are, are, are moving in that direction. They're, they're providing jugs of pre-mixed um, multiple modes of action. And so they're they're starting to follow the the advice that weed scientists have been providing to agriculture for 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 thirty or forty years. Yeah, we probably should be clear that it's not necessarily just a genetic engineering problem. That this is with any kind of crop, whether it's genetically engineered or not, the use of consistent modes of action. So one mechanism of action that uh, you use it too much, plants evolve our way around. Weeds find a way around. And this is really the uh, more of a weed science issue than a genetic engineering issue, but is one of the risks that we use, especially we come encounter, especially in genetic engineering, because of the dependence on a single mode of action, which until very recently was the case. Well, you know, well, we had you typically had glyphosate and glufosinate. Um, now you've got a few others on the table, but the majority of people were depending upon glyphosate applications. So is there any um, anything going on with BT resistance in Canada? No, you're not that I've I'm seeing any signs of Kevin um, that they've done a, a, a pretty good job of making 
farmers aware about the use of um, not so much buffer zones anymore, but but integrating non-BT varieties into the, the corn seed so that they're they're incre or increasing the, the likelihood that the development of insect resistance will be mitigated as much as possible uh, through any of the corn fields. And so so what I'm seeing is that uh, a lot of farmers are are using they'll buy they'll buy all herbicide tolerant, but they might buy a few bags of non like just herbicide tolerant but not insect resistant, mix that into the, the seed that goes into a field. So then they've randomly distributed uh, non-BT plants into the field to and, and that will that helps keep the, the buff provides the buffer zones to for insect control. Oh, that's great. I, and I guess when, because I really wanted to start with risks because uh, when we discuss this stuff and for listeners who are discussing, you know, with family or whatever, it's important to talk about the risks. And, and those are really the risks. It's uh, pollination and outcrossing with wild relatives and even other uh, agricultural crops where people are planning to sell those plants for non-GE, then, you know, they will test positive. Um, but um, also the idea of development of resistance. Those seem to be the biggest risks. What about benefits? The recent paper in Plant Biotechnology Journal uh, really was nice in enumerating very carefully the different benefits. And could you just kind of let us know what are some of the main ones that you think about? Well, I think one of the one profitability comes to mind, um, environmental benefits. But but let me start with the human health ones. Those, those are the ones that I think most people just simply don't realize is that some of the, the BT corn varieties that have the ability to prevent insect damage helps to, to lower the presence of mycotoxins. And, and several classifications or uh, categories of mycotoxins have been linked to do a variety of um, human health problems such as esophageal cancer. And, and so by, by removing that, the insect damage when the cobs exposed air in the presence of mycotoxins, it, it makes healthier food for us to consume. So you know, those are some huge benefits. The, the use of BT cotton in India when far, now farmers, you know, are virtually not spraying these fields at all. So there's there's no pesticide residues on their arms and legs after spraying fields. And, you know, we start extrapolating some of the data from, from over the past decade is as many as 100 million fewer cases of pesticide poisoning in, in India alone. So you look at those types of benefits, that, those are the ones that, that really never get mentioned, certainly by the mainstream media. Uh, we do hear a little bit more about some of the economic benefits and, and um, you know, farmers, farmers are multi-million dollar business operators uh, running a, a family business, multi-generational family business and, and, and doing millions of dollars a year in revenue and, and they need the best technology. And if GM crops weren't increasing their, their yields or, or lowering their input costs, they wouldn't be using the technology, uh, certainly for the, 20 plus years that, that they've been using it. So profitability is, is a huge one. And I, I think that another important one is the significant environmental benefits. So, so when I was young growing up here, we would um, grow wheat on a, on a field of summer follow, then field of oats, and then we'd summer follow for an entire year, take it out of rotation and, and cultivate it for weed control. And depending on how much moisture you got, you could 
cultivate that field up to 10 times during the, the course of a, of a summer. And so by the early 1980s, when, when we hit a drought situation up here and windy, there was topsoil blowing all over the place. And, and so when herbicide tolerant crops came along, giving farmers the option to get really good weed control that they didn't need to take fields out of rotation and summer follow them, they've contributed to, to the removal of 95% of the summer follow acres that we had in Saskatchewan between 1990 and, and 2016. So we've removed over 10 million acres of summer follow. So people will say, well, you use GM crops require more, more chemical use, which isn't true because cumulatively the ag industry is using more chemicals, but that's because we're, we're producing 10 million more acres of, of food every year than, than we have been previously, but we're using fewer chemicals per acre. No, very good. And if one thing you could clarify for me, I know that you said that farmers are making, you know, multi-million dollar revenue per year. And I think when you said that, I heard, um, I heard foreheads hitting the dashboards of tractors all over the country on the, the continent. Um, what's the big difference though with the idea of revenue versus what they're actually making and how GE crops um, really do help that process. Right. So, so input costs and machine and machinery are, are, are high. Um, farmers have started in a lot of cases to realize that they need to put the best technology in the ground to, to deliver a high yielding crop. So they're, so they're buying, paying a higher price for genetically modified technology and, and putting that in the ground and chemicals and fertilizer aren't cheap and the, the equipment for seeding uh, is expensive. So profit, as farmers start to, to figure out what their profitability per acre is, there's a challenge in, in being able to put a crop on all of your acres that, that's going to produce a, a per acre profit. And, and some crops that fit well into rotations don't provide that per acre uh, profitability that that farmers need to to stay in business and and some of those um, will be non-GM crops but they fit well into rotations and they're an important part of of proper land management practices. No, real good. Thank you for clarifying that. But what's happening in the EU right now? Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, that the technologies have been beneficial here. Mm. Um, what's happening in the EU right now and with respect mainly to gene editing? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So about 18 months ago, Kevin, the, the European Court of Justice was asked to rule on a case brought to the, the French government by nine environmental organizations who are arguing that gene editing is a, is just simply another version of genetic modification, and the EU uh, regulatory or regulations for genetically modified crops should should be applied to gene editing. And the court looked at the EU rules and they they agreed with the environmental groups, saying that given the way the, the EU wrote their rules back in two thousand and one, that uh, gene editing, from their opinion, has to be regulated according to, to GM, um, GM crops, which, which was really unfortunate as Canada and the States, Australia, uh, even Japan now is, is uh, moving in the direction of saying that 
if you're using gene editing and the resulting variety could have could have been created through um, through natural mutation in the plant, then this is just conventional plant breeding and, and doesn't require any additional regulatory oversight the way genetically modified crops have been. Oh, very good. And that, that's a decision that really confuses a lot of us um, because, you know, what do you think the long-term impact will be for Europe, for Europe um, but also for, say, European farmers? Well, the results were, were visible within three months, Kevin. Uh, you know, a lot of the big multinationals announced that, that they were moving all of their plant breeding out of Europe. Um, and even some of the smaller and medium-sized companies were announcing that, that they were uh, abandoning breeding efforts within Europe and, and moving them to other parts of the world where they could do cutting-edge science, technology development, uh, their grad students are are leaving because they don't have access to the best technologies, so they're coming to countries that where they they can't apply the techniques. And it, you know, you feel bad for the European farmers because they've been hung out to dry by the environmental groups that that they're just pushing on uh, political campaigns and and with no science behind them, and and so these farmers. Are, are are starting to get increasingly frustrated, and and I think the the out, that um, the public displays of, of uh, frustration expressed in, in the Netherlands, in, in Germany, in France in the past couple of months is, is a good sign of just how frustrated European farmers are getting that, that, that they're being blamed for a lot of um, environment and, and technology uh, problems that, that are simply are, are untrue and, and that these are stewards of the land and they they want the best technologies and and to to be able to be competitive with farmers in other parts of the world no really good uh, so uh, we're talking with dr stuart smythe he's an associate professor at the university of saskatchewan and chair of agri-food innovation and sustainability uh, in that institution this is the talking biotech podcast and we'll be back in just a minute Hi, everybody. It's Kevin. And, you know, it just figures that going into the last episodes I'll host, the sound quality wasn't so good. Not much I could do to fix that. And I don't understand it, but that's what happened. Gremlins. <laughs> but thank you to everybody who's reached out and volunteered to try to host one of these podcasts. There's a lot of outstanding people up to uh, giving interviews and good that there are people who are willing to host it. I think this uh, pirate ship of the Talking Biotech podcast came about through unusual means and it can do a lot of good going forward. So I really want you to come and pick up my passion where it left off. I mean, they can't ban all of us from talking and I really hope that you continue to listen and even continue to contribute. It's too important. We're making great headway in creating an outstanding archive, and as I go back through the episodes, 217 of them, and then some, I see all the topics we covered, all the people we talked to, all of the experts, and all of the information that is out there forever on the web. It's only been four and a half years, and we can still go back and look at where we were. 
I really want you to continue to listen, continue to share the stories, continue to share the science, continue to do your best to help educate others in this important technology that can help people and a planet. Thank you again for listening and hope to talk to you soon. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Stuart Smythe. He's an associate professor and chair of agri-food innovation and sustainability at the lovely University of Saskatchewan, one of my favorite schools. I like going up. I used to get up there all the time, it seems. I haven't been there in a while. But um, let's talk about how the decisions in places like the U.S. and Canada and the EU how policy, how culture, how does this affect deployment in the developing world of the best technologies? That that gets to be a real concern, um, particularly for me as one of the, the partners in my research chair is the Global Institute for Food Security here at the University of Saskatchewan. And, and so a lot of the, the research that's being done by the Institute for Food Security looks at you know, how can we develop technologies or um, whether it's, it's crops or, or the use of, of implements such as drones and these types of things that can help food production in, in developing countries. And, and that's where I have a lot of concern about um, the ties between European countries and some of their former uh, colonial countries. These countries in Africa and Asia export a large amount of their, their production to Europe and, and governments in Europe have, have black or, or simply um, flat out told these developing country governments saying that if you adopt GM varieties, uh, we won't accept any products uh, to, to be exported to Europe. And so that's a cash market for these countries and, and to, to lose uh, valuable um, income like that, loss of trade markets, it is certainly a worry for these governments, but there's been a, a bit of bright news here at, at late in 2019. Nigeria was uh, just approved BT cowpea for commercial production, and most of that will be consumed domestically. But finally, I think we're starting to see um, governments in, in developing countries around the world start to, to reject this um, EU threat that, that's been placed on them largely through the environmental movement. Uh, of of loss of market access, and they're saying, "Look, food security is a problem for our country, and we're going to adopt every technology that allows us to to improve uh, food security domestically." Yeah, it's been a lot of a uh, mixed bag, hasn't it? I mean, we we did some uh, uh, episodes here on the cowpea and on other technologies. I think in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll have Modesta Bugu back on. She's a, actually a student in my department, student of mine, and she's going to cover the uh, cotton release in Kenya, which should be a big deal. Yeah, so that'll that'll be coming too. Um, but you know, when you talk about common sense regulation, and and you know, Canada, it always seemed was very good with respect to the plants or to the crops. And so, how does Canada differ from the U.S. in terms of their regulatory scheme? They're, they're fairly close, Kevin. The, the one thing that, that differentiates the Canadian system a little bit is that, like the U.S., we, we don't differentiate on, on the process used to, to create a product. The, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and Health Canada are the two bodies 
responsible for the regulation of, of GM crops up here. And, and so they look at how novel is the trait that, that's been changed within the plants. So um, genetically modified plants have fallen into that category, as have traditional chemical and radiation mutagenesis technologies that have been used since the 1930s to develop new seed varieties. So it, it, it's, a, it's a broad way of, of looking at, is the final product any different or, or how, you know, how different is it? And, and are the risks any different from commercializing it compared to what already exists? And, and, and Canada, like the States, also uses the notion of substantial equivalence where you, you understand what's in the market, what's been produced over the last number of years or decades, and are the current varieties that are being assessed for risk any different than the varieties that are being uh, produced already and consumed by, by citizens. If the risks are no different than what already exists, then that's how safe risk assessments are done. And, and we, we've used that system successfully commercializing um, well over 100 uh, varieties with, of plants with novel traits in Canada. Yeah, so Canada has been really good there. But what about issues like herbicides? And I know this is a mixed bag. And so maybe you could kind of touch on glyphosate and what the current thinking is in glyphosate, both from a policy perspective, but also how are activists shaping herbicide policy in different um, provinces or different, maybe uh, even smaller regions within the country? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to, to see is a bit of a change in the, the the strategy of the environmental groups. They they went so hard after all the, the fears around genetically modified crops beginning in the, the late 90s up to about four or five years ago. And, and they realized they were losing ground. And, and when you look at uh, trust studies uh, of consumers and who they trust for information on food, environmental groups have been have been dropping. Uh, quite rapidly over the the last six to eight years, and so about four or five years ago, the environmental groups shifted their focus and started to concentrate on the chemicals that are important to genetically modified crops. and And they, in some areas, they've started this at the municipal municipal level. So you're seeing bans at in in cities or or um, smaller communities where they're saying we're we're going to ban glyphosate. The reality is there's there's no enforcement of these mechanisms. Uh, homeowners are, are still using glyphosate to, to spray weeds around their driveways and, and these types of things. And Canada in 2017 uh, was was renewing the approval of, of glyphosate um, for a, a period of 15 years. And so they reviewed all the science um, that, that was provided by Monsanto at the time. Uh, they looked at all of the other literature around chemical use. They looked at all the information that was available to um, the International Agency for Research on Cancer that classified glyphosate as a, as a possible uh, carcinogen. And in, in 2017, the, the CFIA, or through, through the Pest Management Review Agency, uh, toxicologists had conducted their, their risk assessment and they concluded that, that glyphosate was fine. There, there had been a, 
a slight increase in the development of herbicide resistance in, in some weeds, but they felt that this was manageable through, as we discussed a little bit earlier, multiple modes of action in, in chemical applications. And so they renewed glyphosate for 15 years. Now, there was a group of environmental organizations in Quebec that were opposed to this and have been trying to, to get glyphosate banned in Canada. So they they appealed this and the CFIA then in, in 2018, I guess it was, brought in a, another group of scientists toxicologists and scientists that hadn't been involved in the first review. They conducted another review following the, the scientific uh, methods. And in January of 2019, they, they issued a report saying that uh, and it, it, it's one of the strongest reports of any regulatory agency in the world saying that no regulatory agency in the world believes that there's any correlation between the use of glyphosate and the development of cancer in humans. So they sort of slammed the door shut on on any of the environmental groups here, saying that there's absolutely no scientific evidence for um, correlation. And and I think that type of a message is is really important for um, investment in new technologies. And, and and that's one of the things that that Europe's struggling with is that the regulators are consistently delivering messages that. Um, we don't want these technologies, and so you're seeing investment decrease uh, in Europe. In, in the mid-90s, Europe accounted for about one-third of the global ag R&D, and in 2016, that was down to about 9%. So they've lost, you know, um, hundreds, hundreds, well, let me, they've lost probably in the range of 20 to $30 billion over the last 20-odd um, years due to their opposition to biotech. Yeah, that's probably uh, about it. And would you have any guess, like if you had to predict the future of what's going to happen with the glyphosate situation, uh, do you have a, uh, ha wanna, <laughs> do you want to hazard a guess? <laughs> I think in countries like Canada and the States and Australia, um, Japan and others that have strong science-based regulatory systems, glyphosate use is going to be continuously allowed. The governments and, and even the EPA came out just last week um, supporting the, the safe use of glyphosate uh, as, a, as a crop technology. I think that farmers should have confidence that, that is, glyphosate is going to, to remain as an option for them. Um, certainly environmental groups are going to push and, and invest resources to, to try and uh, have glyphosate uh, removed and 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 one of the the things I've been asking all these environmental groups there was a great paper that came out um, a little bit over a year ago they estimated the global loss of glyphosate would amount to about a 6.7 billion dollar reduction in farm income around the world and and I just asked these activists how are you going to um, compensate farmers not not so much in the developed countries but in the developing countries that are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis from the loss of glyphosate and 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 they have no plan they so so they're not interested in food security they're they're just simply can't politically campaigning to to try and have a a technology taken away in industrial countries for political reasons and and so it, it's really troubling to see that that they're pushing ahead with lawsuits that that are that are based on emotion and and not science but the regulations are still made by scientists in a, in a science-based system, and 
And glyphosate has been proven to not have any correlation between cancers. Yeah, I don't know if you if you guys have too much. Well, I know you have this kind of problem up there too. Is that even though our large scale regulation at the federal level or even state level is something that is firmly grounded in science, we have so many local municipalities who are easily pressured by different groups, and it's happening here in my state all over the place. Um, they're actually just getting. Uh, they, they can amass enough of the bad literature and websites and ignore scientific input and get whole, whole counties, whole municipalities to ban the use of the stuff and then wonder, well, what else do we do now? And I, they've had things happen like this, too, in Canada, haven't they? We, we haven't gone that far. There, there might be a few municipalities, mainly urban ones, Kevin, that, that have discussed bans. There, and I seem to recall that there there may be a handful in Canada where they actually have tried to do this. Um, I think the best evidence exists from a couple of countries that have tried to ban glyphosate, and Sri Lanka is an excellent one. Um, they would use glyphosate to control weeds, obviously, in in you know a lot of their crop productions. One of them being tea, and they found that after two or three years, the the weeds were so bad in the tea plantations that there was so many snakes in the field that they couldn't hire anybody to go in and pick the tea leaves. And so after three years, the, the government uh, reversed the ban on glyphosate and allowing uh, tea plantations to use it again. And, and uh, they could actually, you know, they were looking at facing millions of dollars in loss because uh, no one would go in and pick the tea leaves when they were ready to be picked. So, um, you know, banning a technology never works. I mean, Prohibition is, is a great example of that in the United States. And there, there was as much alcohol produced during Prohibition as, as there was previously in post. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. You know, scarcity has a funny way of um, coming back in the wrong direction when it's a product that people find useful. And, you know, that, you know, you probably know more about that than I do in terms of the psychology of that. So the whole discussion today, we've really focused on you know, the old school issues, the crops that have been approved, the chemicals associated with them. But what's on the horizon? I mean, we're seeing more and more interest and enthusiasm in gene editing of horticultural crops. And Canada, certainly with the warmer weather, has been doing better with more horticultural crops. And so what's happening there? One of the, the neat things in talking to, to some of the, the research centers around the country is the huge interest they've got in, in applying gene editing into uh fruits, but particularly the vegetable markets. Um, as, as climate changes, we know we're, we're going to have more or more weather variability, but, but that also means that uh, we're also going to have more variability with plant diseases, um, with insects that, that we've not had to deal with before. So, so issues around virus resistance and, and insect resistance in vegetable varieties is, is becoming a huge interest um, in, in the vegetable market. And I think that's probably going to be one of the, the real growth markets in, in, in Canada and, and more than likely the States too, Kevin, is that um, garden vegetable varieties are, are going to be developed through gene editing that, that have better, uh, say, better blight resistance for tomatoes as as we, we, we get into to increase moisture concert or um, moisture weather patterns or um, insects that, have, that 
we haven't presently had to control for. Those will naturally be built into into the plants and and, and giving the you know giving people that like to grow a few vegetables in their backyards the ability to, to actually um, consume the products at, at the end of the summer as opposed to, to seeing them destroyed by insects or plant diseases. That's an excellent point. I, the thing that I've been focusing on in, in the lab as well as just my, my, you know, my free time thinking is what are the things, you know, Florida's a really unique climate. You know, we can do a lot of stuff here because we have warm weather and you know, a lot of disease pressure and other issues. But what are the plants that are just one step away from commercial production? Like maybe they just don't ship well, or they don't have a great flavor, or they get one kind of disease. You know, what are the things that are one step off? And I think that within the next 10 years, you will see an explosion of new flavors, new fruits and vegetables, varieties, flavors, things no one's ever seen before. And I think it's super exciting. So, you know, that, that's my, my perspective. Um, you probably see that, you know, pretty much everywhere. So that's a really great point. One of the interesting ones I've seen is they've, they've sequenced most of the apple genomes now. So, so as they start to better understand which genes are responsible for flavor, you're absolutely right that, that we're going to you know, I, I think we'll see an explosion of, of new uh, apple varieties or or changes in, a, you know, the, the apple varieties that we've all come to sort of love over the years, whether it's a Granny Smith or a Macintosh or a uh, Fiji or, or whatever, um, that, that they'll be able to, to draw on uh, gene editing and, and change the, the ability to stand up during transportation or, um, you know, like you say, change the... the the flavor attributes, um, not only for, for cooking or, or for consuming um, directly, and, and but for baking as well. And, and, and that opens up a tremendous possibility, not, not only for us for, for eating an apple um, out of the fridge, but buying baked products using apples through, through bakeries. I mean, it opens up a tremendous opportunity in the baking industry as well. So, you know, I, I think, in, you know, if we redid this podcast a decade from now, um, we'd be staggered by by how much of our diet has been impacted through genome editing. Yeah, maybe I'll be a host of it back in, in a decade <laughs> again. <laughs> it better not take a decade. Well, yeah, I, I, it's, uh, it'll be interesting. They've called a meeting for January 20th, and I, right now we're sitting on December 27th or so uh they want to talk to me on the 20th and so we'll see what happens but they were very clear before about you know how uh they want me to be going forward and uh, all my talks for 2020 are still canceled so that's you know there's that but um nonetheless still learning to live well in the box that i'm in and i'm going to be doing some other stuff that will happen so that's uh switching from one gear to another and we'll just have to do something different and do well in that space so there you go yeah. Um, if people want to follow you, where do they find you? Good. Yeah. So, so we've got a, a, a website set up called safe food, S A I F O O D.ca. So it stands for sustainable agriculture innovations and in food. We, we put out a blog once a week and uh, starting in a couple of weeks, we'll be putting out student blogs. My students write blogs as part of a, a class assignment in the fall and we'll, We'll publish probably 25 or 30 of those over the next four or five months. You can follow me on Twitter um, at uh, Stuart Smythe 66. 
and um, we've, we're on Facebook uh, as Safe Food as well. And I should mention an excellent Twitter follow. I think uh, probably, you know, not just prolific, but probably some of the best content. And I'm glad you have uh, really been not hesitant to take on the crazies. Um, it's a, a, a space I miss and uh, something that uh, I'm glad you're stepping into it. You really do a very nice job of treating them kindly and uh, correctly with the right information. So definitely follow Stuart there. So Stuart Smythe, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the time you've taken and uh, really nice to talk to you again. Well, thank you for the invitation, Kevin. I, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this and, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you and, and collaborating with you on a few things and, and here participating in conferences with you and, and look forward to just building that relationship even more over the, over the coming years. Yeah, I'd love that. I think we should do uh, some sort of project together because I think we would have fun, plus we'd be able to pencil in the project meetings, uh, not just intellectually have a good time with it, but it's just fun to sit around and talk about stuff. And uh, you've always been a good guy in that regard, and I, I really appreciate you a lot. So uh, thank you again for today, and thank you listeners for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes, keep the momentum going, um, continue to support the podcast, continue to comment with the new guest hosts, Give them advice. Uh, if you want to be a guest host, let me know. I'll make it painless and easy and would love to have more voices contributing to this institution, to this platform and this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Have a very happy rest of 2019, which will be a day or two, and we'll talk to you again next year. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.